Today's episode is once again brought to you by the Japanese names for reploids. Oh, sure, stuff like Icim Penguigo sounds fine, you know what that is. Wirehead Amari is a little weird, but have you considered Spark Mandriller? <laughs> and don't worry, that's not even the most homoerotic thing we'll be discussing when we tackle Mega Man Extreme and Mega Man Extreme 2 on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this show is the show where I chronicle my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And today, we've got a duo feature because it's time to finish up the reign of the Game Boy Color with Mega Man Extreme and Mega Man Extreme 2. Because, you see, the Game Boy Advance was coming out at this point with Mega Man Battle Network, but that doesn't mean that we don't have time to slip in some Game Boy Color ports of the X games. And so, in the year 2000, we received a Mega Man Extreme, originally released as Rockman X Cyber Mission in Japan. This first game opens with an actually fairly lengthy backstory crawl on the assumption that you have never experienced the world of Mega Man before. It explains things like what Reploids are, they're copies of Mega Man X, and how Dr. Kane was involved in that, and it even includes the lore that was established in X4, like Zero being the first Maverick and stuff. And uh, it's almost impressive just how long that opening sequence goes on, because it's for minutes. And then we finally hit the title screen, and we can actually start playing Mega Man Extreme. You're probably wondering, how exactly do you make the X games work on a Game Boy. A Game Boy has a very limited resolution, and it's not like the Game Boy Color changed that. The field of view relative to your sprite size is pretty small, which is not a great mix for the fact that Mega Man moves pretty fast, and the answer is, um, they didn't really account for that. That isn't to say it's a bad thing. Let's, let's back up and talk about how they adapted this. First off, the Game Boy Color is a system with A, B, Start, Select, and a D-pad. How do you implement a dash in the middle of that? You either allow the player to do down an A, like a slide, you allow them to double tap in a direction, or you give them the option to have the Select button function as a dash button. None of these options are great, to be honest. Having to use down and A to trigger a slide makes it a little bit awkward to carry the momentum in. Double tap dashing is a standard in some games, but never necessarily feels great when you need to do it with any precision. Obviously, none of this works on the walls. It's not unplayable, though, is the surprise. Like, despite the fact that this is pretty much straight up a downgrade, I would say, in control, it's functional. They did also do a couple things that the world games before had not done to just assist with playability. For one, there is the option to turn on either rapid fire while you hold down the attack button, or an auto-charge system when you're not pressing your attack button, which that can be a little bit awkward with powered-up weapons, but also isn't the worst thing. The game also has a couple features like on-cartridge saving, which is really, really nice. No more passwords required, we're going modern. And interestingly, that is actually um, brought forward into stage design. Stages regularly have like large black bars that you'll travel through that you'll see that temporarily flash the game screen with a now saving message. 
and that is actually an autosave. You pretty much never have to worry about running out of battery and being unable to progress in these games. These extra autosaves also work as checkpoints, so it's more generous than the original games. It's not in some other ways, which we'll get to. And I think the part that's actually most surprising is that these little autosave triggers also, I think, work as, like, obfuscated load points. Because the thing is, is the stages in this game, in Extreme 1, are almost exactly stages from actual Mega Man games. Like, it's actually startling just how well reproduced everything is. You'll see it really early on with, like, the opening stages, X1's opening stage. But later on, we get to stages that have more, like, just wide areas and stuff. Stages like Storm Eagle's Airport and such that have just a lot of space to them, a lot of multi-directional travel, and it's all there. And I'm pretty sure it's being done by basically having a bunch of small stages, which are chunks of the stage, that the Game Boy can actually handle at full strength, and using those checkpoints as a load barrier because you can't go backwards once you pass through one. The reason that I'm spending time describing this cheat and stuff is it's a cheat that works as beneficial to the player and actually allows the Game Boy Color to do a bigger recreation of these stages than you would think. Everything that you expect out of the stages in this game, which I'll go over right now, it is the X1 opening stage, it's Chill Penguin, it's Spark Mandrel, it's Storm Eagle, it's Flame Stag, Sigma stages from X1 and X2, like everything is here and pretty much faithfully spot-on recreated, or as spot-on as they could realistically pull off. This is a very, very different philosophy from the world games, which were about remixing the stages and reimagining them into a Game Boy setting. Now, that's cool in managing to bring back Mega Man X's, like, really fun stage design and stuff, but once again, just pulling things from another game doesn't always work. If you don't know these stage layouts to begin with, sometimes you're going to get cheap-shotted by enemies loading in just a little bit later than they would have and giving you less time to react. There's stuff that is functionally kind of blind jumps that you would have been able to see with the original field of view on the SNES. This philosophy of trying to pull stuff as close as they could for bosses also stays. Unfortunately, the boss rooms in this game are just straight up smaller, and even if they tried to slow down some of the bosses, just the lack of physical space in these arenas makes them much tougher than they were in the original. Spark Mandrel's habit of like randomly dashing or jumping or all the different things he can do is actually nightmarish to deal with, to be honest. It's really difficult. Anyway, that's why I'm not going to go into like a stage-by-stage -stage breakdown or anything of this game. So much of what's here is what's already happened, but we haven't been through its story, and it does have a few little surprises for us. I did mention that this game is referred to as Cyber Mission in Japan. There's a reason for that. This game is set after the end of X2, where we destroyed, like, the mother computer or whatever that was being handled by Magna Centipede, and then later by Sigma and stuff. You'll be forgiven if you don't remember this plot detail, because it was given zero dialogue. It was just kind of lazy stage reuse in X2. Anyway, the point is, is apparently it's come back online, and... 
X is going to be jumping between like a cyberspace recreation of some of these old levels and some of these old bosses he defeated as he tries to break the security to reach the computer itself in order to figure out who's messing with it and who's trying to reboot it. We meet a couple new characters in this. We're assisted by a young reploid boy named uh, Mitty, and then on kind of the quote-unquote enemy faction, if you will, is a trio of robots, one of whom is basically a palette swap Mitty named Techno, one is a large, like, knight shinobi-styled reploid named Gimel, and there's one who's kind of a piratey reploid with a giant anime sword named Zane. They're basically within the mother computer trying to hack it and do something to it. I don't think it's ever fully explained. Well, okay, let's be real. What's actually happening is they're trying to put Sigma back into the mother computer, because of course it's Sigma. In practice, a lot of this is just an excuse plot. Like, yes, we do actually fight Zane during the game. We can fight him at a couple points. He basically replaces Vile. He's a very simple fight that is mostly about just jumping at you and swinging down his big sword and you have to dash under him. Once we do actually break through the four returning stages and we're about to catch them, uh, Gimel just decides to get the heck out of Dodge, leaves Techno behind for us to deal with, but we don't actually fight him. Instead, we, I don't know, scare the Sigma possession out of him? Question mark? It's a little bit confusing what exactly happens to him, but he apparently regains his senses just in time for Mitty, who it turns out is his brother, to show up, and also somehow this is critically damaged Techno, which apparently him and Mitty share the same CPU, which, huh? And so there's this big tragic moment where both of them die. If it sounds like I don't care about this, um, I really don't. The game really kind of half-asses this effort to the point that these two characters are basically palette swaps of each other, which is how you know they're siblings. And it does a poor job establishing. Like, it spent all that time on this opening lore crawl about the Mega Man X universe and then does not spend any time on its actual new cast. It's all honestly just a complete failure where they really wanted to write in a tragedy, so they did, regardless of whether anything was set up to make that work. You know, the same way that most of the X game endings have been all like, oh, X and Zero are destined to fight each other, as an informed thing as opposed to making us care. Anyway, you get the idea. It's honestly kind of early X game quality writing. At the end of it all, after that whole pseudo-tragedy, we get to go have our showdown with Sigma, because of course Sigma's behind it all. It's straight up Sigma from X1. He doesn't have uh, his Hound backing him up this time, but we still have to deal with Sigma with the light sword bouncing up the walls and stuff, and then have to deal with giant fursuit Sigma in the background. I'm sorry, Wolf Sigma, which is the big background boss from X1 that was an absolute nightmare, but he's way easier in this version, because only like one of his attacks has the possibility to hit you if you're just hanging out in the top left corner in this version, which is good because that fight was a pain in the neck originally. And that's it. That's extreme. We get an ending with some traditional self-reflection by X about how, man, he really wishes victory in battle didn't have to come with all this death. You know, why do Reploids have to fight each other? And I mean, that's it. Roll credits. Nope. Just kidding. After you finish the game, you're informed that hard mode has been unlocked and your save data will transfer into it. What does this mean? Well, hard mode is a second loop of the game, but this time, we get stages for Wheel Gator, Magna Centipede, Armored Armadillo, and Morph Moth instead. 
there's sort of a continuation of the story. This time, it's a second loop where all this is happening again, but obviously all the characters who died previously are dead, and Gimel's just here to be a pain in the neck and try to get his revenge. We'll fight him. He is, again, incredibly trivial. Very simple pattern. He feels like a classic Mega Man boss when all the other bosses in this game are X1 and X2 bosses who have a variety of moves, so it's not impressive. But there is a couple new things we can find during the second playthrough as well. The first time around, we found armor parts, and most of them are like, you know, X1-style armor parts, nothing really all that new that's going on, slightly adjusted for this game. In this second set of stages, however, we can get zero summons. Essentially, Zero has his own weapon energy gauge in this game, and by popping open the menu and selecting one of these four different Zero summons, different amounts of this gauge will be triggered in order to summon Zero in for a special attack. Most of these attacks are really powerful against regular enemies and are great for taking out tankier things, but also they don't seem to work that well against bosses. I could just have not been using the right ones or something, maybe they're actually great, but it didn't seem to be. They're fine, they're a neat idea, the problem is is it kind of breaks up the flow to like open up a menu specifically to pull out a like super attack every few seconds, but it's alright. Once you finish those four stages, it's back into the Sigma stages. Oh right, I should mention, there is a hidden sure-you-can-type thing in this game, just like there was an X1 and X2. In fact, it's even hidden in the same spot that it was an X2. This time, however, Dr. Light just straight up teaches Mega Man X the Shotokan style, which is Ryu's fighting style from Street Fighter. And it's implemented a little different in this game. First off, we don't have to have full energy in order to do these moves, which is wonderful. Second off, all we have to do to trigger them is to fully charge our buster, then either hold up for the Shoryuken or down for a Hadouken when actually firing. And third, they're not actually, like, overwhelmingly supremely powerful this time around. They don't instant delete bosses, they just do a larger amount of damage than default and give you some invincibility in the case of the Shoryuken. But that's honestly enough. They're fun to use, they're simple, they're not completely overpowering, but we also don't have to be as perfectionist to make use of them. I don't know, I like its implementation in this one. Oh, right, and we're actually not done with the game just because we finished it twice, because then there's Extreme Mode, as fits the title. Extreme Mode is your full, typical Mega Man game. Now we have all eight stages open from the beginning, and when we do the boss refights at the end of the game, we will have to go through all eight bosses again, and that's about the only difference. Also, you can't carry over previous power-ups into this, but it's kind of an interesting idea that essentially you're playing half games that are more suited to what you'd expect out of the Game Boy, and then it goes, hey, here's the full experience. Visiting it from a modern point of view, and like for this podcast, the fact that I had to play through it essentially three times was uh, not my favorite thing. Not that I don't like play the X games as both X and then Zero and stuff as is. I mean, this would have been really cool if you were a kid getting this game for Christmas, and like it would have felt like a ton of added replay value and stuff, and it's cool for that. Within retrospect and with free access to the rest of the series, though, being honest... It is impressive in a technical sense. It is impressive in a, wow, they actually brought this to a Game Boy Color sense. But strictly speaking, this is an okay copy, but it's just that. It's a copy. Sometimes it doesn't translate all that well. One of the bosses that is brought back is the Sickness fight from X2, and it's somehow even worse. The bosses are not necessarily the best adapted to their a limited space. The sound chip. We'll come back to this, but the sound chip is very, very limited 
on the Game Boy Color, they're trying to do so much with its music that they don't leave space for its sound effects. So almost any time anything in the game is making a sound, part of the music will drop out. This wasn't that unusual for the era, but it's made even worse by the fact that a lot of things were just not given sound effects in order to accommodate for the music. That includes, like, if you're hitting a boss and not doing any damage to it, you won't hear, like, a plink as your shot bounces off. It'll just be nothing. Also, sometimes the level layout leads to blind jumps and... The controls oftentimes feel like you get dropped inputs or like awkward dashing, and it's just, just play X1 and X2. Extreme is a cool concept, the novelty is neat, but in practice, this is just an inferior version of those games. But what about its sequel? First released in 2001 as Rockman X2 Solar Racer, Mega Man Extreme 2 opens up with a new original story sequence in cutscenes, essentially telling us that a whole bunch of reploids on a place called Lagoo's Island have suddenly just stopped working. This phenomenon comes to be known as Erasure, and in order to investigate it, X and Zero travel to the Reploid Research Lavatory. Hold on, what? Nope. Nope, okay, that's that's what the game calls it. If you don't know why this is funny to me, uh, lavatory is a word for bathroom. Pretty sure they meant to call it laboratory, but that's what they call it. Translation's a little off on this one, but that seems to be the source of the problem. So off go X and Zero to explore this with the assistance of their new navigator on loan from the Repliforce, Iris. This game did come out after X4, but it's kind of neat that they took this opportunity to rewind a bit and add her a little bit into the canon so that, like, X and Zero now have some history with her. So that, you know, everything that happens in X4 theoretically has a little more weight. This game has a couple nice little updates to it, by the way. There is now the option to set our select button to actually function as a weapon quick swap, which is brand new to the Game Boy games. Never been done before, was an excellent opportunity to use the select button, just saying. We get less obtrusive checkpointing. Uh, we get, I'll come back to this, but we actually get some new weapons from some of the bosses, which is cool. But the biggest thing that will stand out when you start Mega Man Extreme 2 is that you are offered X mission and you are offered zero mission. Although this game is made up of stages from X1, X2, and X3, we are now not just limited to playing as X in them, but also given the opportunity to play as Zero. Now, I will say Zero doesn't feel the best to play in this one. His range is very short in this one. It's made up for by giving Zero an absolute ton of damage compared to X, but there's a lot of times where you can, you can catch little bits where you're like, hmm, this enemy was never really designed to be fighting anything other than X was he? Because, yeah, he wasn't. But it still works out, I guess, okay by and large. Most importantly, a lot of the classic stages from X1 and X2 wouldn't have worked if they were just ported over straight up. So this time, unlike Extreme, the stages are remixed, retouched, and reimagined. Some of them are very, very close to their originals. Wire Sponge comes back and is very, very similar. Flame Mammoths is 
almost identical, for instance, but a number of the stages do feature some new tweaks and stuff, new hazards. Volt Catfish's stage, weirdly, is completely replaced with what feels more like Toxic Seahorse's stage, with some brand new gimmicks of, like, giant sweeping currents, which the second time they come up in the stage can actually just instant kill you instead, which feels weird and unforewarned, but we'll get back to that. And then we also have, like, Blast Hornet has a completely new stage, and Overdrive Ostrich's stage is so remixed it might as well be fundamentally new, given they turned the, uh, riding around on the speeder bike for a little bit with full control into a full-on X4 or X5 style speeder bike stage, complete with all the problems that come from the speeder bike stages, including, well, in this case, they actually slowed it down so that it runs at a reasonable pace, but they didn't fix heavy controls and instant death moments, and it still feels really bad, just in a different way this time. If my biggest complaint about Extreme 1 was that everything was just ported over and brought over pretty much identically, Extreme 2, by and large, wants to reimagine and adapt things. It goes out of its way to make bosses act slower than they did in the original game, on the knowledge that you don't necessarily have the time to escape them. It readapts levels to try to avoid blind jumps. Spoiler, it does not succeed but it tries. Uh, what else is there to talk about? Um, oh, right. This game brings something from the world games into the X-Series that the X-Series has not had to date, which is a shop. Unlike other shops throughout the Mega Man series to date, the currency in this game is just acquired as you pick up weapon and health drops off of enemies. It's not a separate drop, which is actually kind of a smooth way to play it. It essentially means you will just build up this currency as you play. X can equip four different parts that you buy from the shop at once, Zero can equip three, and once you get all of X's armor, he can only equip two, but then you have all the advantages of X's armor, of course. The fact that you, like, pick and choose which of these parts are active is a nice little touch of customization. One thing I didn't like is that you can't see a lot of the purchasables in the shop until you've actually earned enough money to purchase them. They just remain complete mysteries until then. Some of them, looking into it later, I wish I'd known about and had just saved up for instead of picking up extraneous stuff because I thought the rest of it would be unlocked somehow. Because there's some stuff like faster charge shots for X that's in here that, yeah, it would have been nice. One thing that is really powerful in the shop is there is the ability to buy upgrades to your buster and your Z-Saber that just straight up increase the damage those base weapons do to make them honestly pretty overpowered. But yeah, the biggest thing to note is that X's mission and Zero's mission do feature four different bosses each. X features Neon Tiger, Launch Octopus, Volt Catfish, and Flame Mammoth, while Zero's mission features Wire Sponge, Blast Hornet, Overdrive Ostrich, and Tunnel Rhino. In addition to this, while the first couple stages of the finale of this game are pretty familiar, they do feature some new bosses, and the final stage for each mission is actually radically different from each other. But we'll get to the finale of this game and its plot after we discuss some of the new weapons that appear. Oh boy, oh boy, I've been kind of waiting for this. It's been a while since I've gotten to talk Mega Man weapons. Naturally, that means we're going to talk about Zero's arsenal first. Because Zero does get, like 
some fairly standard weapons in this game. Like, he does get a rising slash and a diving attack and a dashing slash and all that sort of thing. Fairly standard stuff. Notably, though, there is no instruction in the game itself as to how to activate Zero's different weapons in this game, which kinda sucks a bit. Interestingly in this game, though, some of Zero's weapons are now actually activated through the menu, and they basically act like the Zero summons in the previous game, exhausting a bit of his overall weapon energy bar to just pause the game and do some sort of super attack. Notably, if you give him the half-energy functionality from the shop, his strongest attack can be used twice on a stage's boss to drop it to like a third of its remaining HP, which trivializes most bosses. I'm pretty sure that's the speedrun strat. What's doubly interesting is that they actually gave zero armor parts in this game to find, which is cool, except half of them literally only allow zero to break blocks in one specific other area each. Those broken blocks are literally just used to access other parts for zero, so in practice, he just has a defense upgrade and what's referred to as the Zero Final, which is another one of those menu-triggered attacks that obsoletes other weapons that he's picked up by just being his strongest move. Which, uh, can't say I'm a fan of the strongest part of a character's arsenal in a Mega Man game being completely untied to bosses and in fact negating the value of four of the bosses, so... Anyway... As for X's side, X does have eight weapons, despite only having four stages. Notably, if you complete Zero's mission first, and then save the game, you can continue on into X's mission, and X will inherit the four weapons that Zero had done. Or vice versa, if you do X first, then when you do Zero's mission on that file, Zero will have the other half of his personal arsenal. Now, three of X's weapons are essentially just the weapons that he already had, but worse. Like, Strike Chain now is absolute garbage with, like, zero range for some reason. Sonic Slicer is slow as hell because, um, I don't know. Tornado Fang's still okay, I guess, but it no longer disables enemy hitboxes, so it lost the thing that made it cool. But other than that, X has five brand new weapons. The Bomb B from Blast Hornet is a slow-moving exploding projectile that is pretty poor, but when fully charged, it does give him a form of shield by just surrounding him in bees, which is a fantastic weapon description. Flame Mammoth now gives out the Fire Wave. This is a dropped pillar of fire that moves kind of ground-tracking projectile style. It would be cool because it's very, very tall, but most stage design is not designed around enabling it, and it only hits once and then just stops. I was expecting it to either hit for more damage or, like, continue piercing, so it's pretty mediocre. The three new weapons, though, are all great. Launch Octopus's M-Tornado is an instantaneous attack above and below Mega Man that does just a good amount of damage and works super well in any section where you have to wall climb. Volt Catfish's Tri-Thunder is just, like, a forward attack and two diagonal attacks forward. Each of them does hit individually, and enemies tend not to be affected by iframes as much in this game, so it can actually do very significant damage and destroy things quickly. And then Neon Tiger's Rayclaw, at first you hit it and you expect it to look like a classic forward slash, but it actually sticks around until it hits something, allowing you to essentially set up a barrier as you dive through things. Um, it's a very interesting take on the shield because it is very powerful, very melee efficient, but is a little bit thin, and you have to very specifically use your front to attack things and not just the rough location of your body. It's an interesting weapon. But I promised that there would be some plot here, and so let's get into what's actually going on in this mission. 
very early on into the story of this game, regardless of which character we're playing as, we will meet Gareth. He is a knight-like reploid who calls himself a soul eraser. Apparently, what he is harvesting out of these reploids that causes them to stop functioning is what comes to be known as DNA souls, which... Uh, don't think too hard on that, because the phrase DNA and soul within the context of robotics are three extremely <laughs> disparate concepts, <laughs> and they're just sort of treated as a thing, I guess, and this isn't going to become part of the lore, although maybe it kind of does to explain Iris's boss fight in X4, maybe. But eventually we find out that Gareth is working with a very witch-queen-styled reploid named Burkana. Burkana is essentially the one behind the whole thing and is essentially sending Gareth out to erase what he considers to be bad reploids and steal their energy in order to help Burkana grow more powerful. When it's finally time to take them on, we have three more or less brand new final stages with more or less brand new bosses too. Now, not the first stage. The first stage ends in a fight with the return of Sigma's weird hound dog companion from X1, which honestly, it's nice to see that callback. I'm fine with it. The second stage boss can go to hell. It is a gigantic screen-filling Sigma-faced double-headed pyramid tank who is maybe the worst boss I've fought in the series, or sure feels like it. It has a giant spike on the front of it, and there is like a platform hovering in the corner that you can climb onto to stay away from it whenever it's forward, but if you somehow fall off that platform, which it is firing various projectiles at you to try to knock you off, and you end up down in there, you're going to take an absolute ton of damage because there's just nowhere to run. The projectiles from the boss, if it does manage to get in close to you, are almost undodgeable, Forget it, you're taking damage. Only Zero's basic attack can push the tank back by hitting its front, but then Zero has to figure out how to safely hit the heads of the tank, which is its own can of worms. God help X, like, this fight just sucks. It is a rushdown of just trying to kill it faster than it kills you, because, wow, there's just nothing you can do about this damage. I hate this fight. Anyway, when we arrive in the third stage... X and Zero meet with both Burkana and Gareth, who challenge them and say, hey, we've got two different places we're waiting for you, come get us, and X and Zero split up, and so we get completely different final stages. They're mostly revisits of mechanics that we've seen before. I do want to specifically call out X's final stage because it sucks, because X's final stage has a problem wherein if you did not find the leg parts, and they're easy to find, but if you didn't find the leg parts, then you don't have essentially X's air dash or double jump, which they worked into this game, and you literally need that in one of the rooms in this place. Otherwise, you get instant killed by a flood, which, by the way, the flood looks exactly like the one in Volt Catfish's stage that was safe to stand in, but this time it kills you, because mechanical consistency is important. And also, this game really just liked adding instant kill death hazards as stage gimmicks. On the flip side, the payout for finishing X's stage is that the Burkana fight is really cool. She floats around the top half of the arena and mostly attacks you by throwing letters at you. Either letter A, which, if it hits you, will temporarily prevent you from jumping, and then she will throw some undodgeable attacks at you, but you still have the opportunity to hit her. She'll cast the letter B at you, which disables your jumping and forces you to basically do some dodging for a little bit. Or she casts the letter Spike at you and just throws like a bouncing spike ball <laughs> to the ground. Yeah, no, Burkana's fight is really neat because most of her 
attacks don't immediately damage you, but they still punish you and force you to respond, and I don't know, it's a really nice fight. Zero's stage is much simpler and overall better, but Zero's fight with Gareth is a lot messier. I'm still not sure how exactly Gareth works. Like, sometimes he seemed weak to specific attacks, or maybe it wasn't specific attacks, and sometimes he'd just randomly block things, and sometimes he'd just screw off and just throw around a bunch of spears, and I don't know. Like, I walked away from the fight feeling like I had no idea how I did or didn't win that fight. Either way, though, they're both kind of like cool characters in concept, and they're an interesting little addition. After defeating both Burkana and Gareth, X and Zero leave the laboratory. They've defeated the enemies. Both of them have fairly similar endings, with X saying he feels like he can take on the world with his partner and friend Zero, and Zero's like, man, I could defeat anyone if I had X by my side, and, um, man, when I was a kid, I remember seeing a lot of people shipping X and Zero and being like, you know, that's nice and all, but I don't see it, I don't understand. And now I'm, you know, an adult, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, the games really did write these two as just completely obsessed with each other, didn't they? There's a line in Zero's ending where Iris is like, hey, are you sure you two should have separated? And Zero's like, it's okay, even if we're apart, I feel like I'm protected by knowing he's the round two. And I'm just like, wow, Kid Me really was just clueless, wasn't he? Anyway, you can tell that these endings aren't canonical because it, the game is not harping, oh, but they're destined to fight someday. It's just the two of them being butts. And now you can do Game Plus into the other story, unless you have already finished the other story, in which case it's time to get extreme mode, because they did this again. Essentially, this one's led off with Iris going, you know, I'm not 100% sure we actually succeeded, and then it's a different take on the game where now you have all eight stages available to you, and you have the ability to switch between X and Zero at any time. Now, technically, this was actually introduced during the Fortress stages, but you didn't really use it because the other character hadn't gotten any power-ups. And yes, power-ups that you pick up in this game are exclusive to the character who picks them up, which remains the case in Extreme Mode. But all the same, you have the ability for the first time in the series to live hot-swap your character back and forth as much as you want and use whichever character is better for the scenario. Extreme Mode also introduces a couple new boss attacks and slightly updates some stage hazards. Like, there's a hazard in Flame Mammoth stage that suddenly becomes instant kills that didn't need to be, and I don't know why they opted for that. But the point is, is you now get, like, the full Extreme 2 experience, complete with a brand new fourth stage after you finish off either Burkhan or Gareth, depending on which character you enter the stage with. In that final stage, we actually get a whole new Sigma fight. Because of course Sigma's behind it all. Why was he behind it all? I have absolutely no idea. Sigma has no stated goal or objective in this game. He just literally shows up as, haha, I was behind it the whole time. And you're like, why? And then he provides his iconic line, now is not the time for talk, now is the time to destroy it. I told you the translation and editing of this game was top-notch. Anyway, the final stage has our traditional 8-boss gauntlet, and then we get a brand new fight with a giant robot Sigma that is actually not one of the Sigmas from the previous games. He is, like, 
screen-sized, and there are attacks he does that are straight-up awkwardly undodgeable, and it's a little bit frustrating that it becomes a thing. Like, sometimes you can knock him backwards and out of the attack, but only sometimes, and it's really inconsistent. But the main gimmick for this fight that's actually really neat is that every so often his armor will change colors, and you have to attack him with the character whose color matches his armor, otherwise you can't deal any damage to him. It also has an absolute ton of HP, because every time you finish off the armor, Sigma himself at the core becomes vulnerable for, like, one hit. As cool of a concept as this boss was, it was a little bit frustrating, I won't lie. But anyway, once we defeat Sigma, then we find out that the DNA souls may have been actual literal souls, as they straight up fly back to the bodies of the various reploids that they were supposed to be with, and X and Zero, like, high-five and head back. That's, that's basically it. There is an unlocked boss rush feature, which, interestingly, gives us the option to also fight the Extreme 1 bosses if we want instead, but that's basically it. That's Mega Man Extreme 2. Okay, so what did I think about Mega Man Extreme 2? It's better than the first one, to be sure. It has more original content, it has more reasons to be played over itself. It does have some updates, like giving the characters access to the air dash this time, which honestly, that does feel alright within the Game Boy control scheme, because it's just activated by jumping again in the air, generally speaking. The adaptation of the levels is fun, like, I like Burkana a lot. The fact that there is the two different playable characters, and that they get their, like, upgrades uniquely in extreme modes, and even, like, which boss abilities they get is based on which boss you defeat with which character in extreme mode, means that there is actually significant replayability to the mode. The tag system, of course, is going to come back in later X games as a main series thing, which is great. And a lot of stuff works well. It's just there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work all that great. There's some general stuff. Some stuff to do with, like, the controls still being kind of sticky and awkward sometimes. But there's also a lot of stuff in, like, level design, with many of the game's new obstacles just being instant kills, which aren't necessarily fun. Or ways in which, for instance, Zero's armor, again, two of the pieces of the armor are effectively just keys to get the other two pieces that don't really do anything new or exciting. It's a cool idea to port this content from X1, X2, and X3 into a Game Boy format that you wouldn't normally think would be able to handle it, but it feels like, outside of Burkana and Gareth, most of what was new here, I kind of can't say I was super enthused about. There is still good stuff. The shop, the customization, the ability to swap characters just on a whim, like, all of this is really fine. Generally speaking, the game is well-balanced for a handheld, and has actually taken that into account unlike Extreme 1, but the unfortunate reality is that unless you want to dig really hard into Mega Man X's universe and want to see and experience Burkana and Gareth, I'll be honest... Just stick to the SNES originals. There was a time when this being on Game Boy meant it would have been accessible to a very different audience. These days, it's just as easy. It's easier to get a hold of the originals, and they are kind of just better games. Extreme 2 is not a bad game, but while it has some of its own legs, they don't do enough to help it stand on its own. 
Now, one thing I do think was fine was the music. Given the limited sound chip of the Game Boy, the musical adaptation here is fine. I already went over the problem whereby the music is oftentimes trying to use all of its channels for music and how that conflicts with the sound of the game. Some of the tracks are a little bit sharp and shrill, which is a little bit unfortunate, and there's almost no original music in these games at all. They even pulled from the classic version if they really needed a different theme in order to play. Otherwise, almost everything in this is just Game Boy remixes of the tracks from X1 through X3. But I'll still highlight three of them that I thought did a pretty good job. And the first one, unexpectedly, is Neon Tiger's theme from X3. When given full instrumentation, this track traditionally feels really weak and boring in X3 because it's a very short loop and it's very droning. Somehow, that actually works way better in the Game Boy's sound font and has given a lot of punch that the original just didn't have. Second, from Extreme 1, I'd like to highlight Spark Mandriller. Uh, sorry, Spark Mandrill's theme. God, I can't get over that. Mandriller, really? Uh, anyway, I mentioned in the original episode for X1 that I love this track for its, like, back-and-forth guitar duel sound. This time, they chose to regularly shift the tone that is being used as the main lead, and it even just augments that guitar duel back-and-forth, even if it can't quite reach the same level of strength. Finally, I'd like to highlight Overdrive Ostrich's stage. I did complain about the stage being, like, much worse than the original due to the speeder bike stuff, but the music... It manages to capture pretty much all of the spirit and soul of the original. Even, like, the rock guitar solo comes across really well in the track. It's just adapted super nice. And that will do it for Mega Man Extreme. But that won't do it for 2001, and that won't do it for Mega Man X. Because I've been kind of putting it off, but you know what? 
since we're going roughly chronologically, it's either this or Battle Network 2, and we just did Battle Network 1 a couple episodes ago, and while I know there are people out there who are excited for Battle Network 2, I want to put myself through hell first before I get to one of my favorite games of all time. So we're going to play arguably one of the worst Mega Man games of all time with Mega Man X6, and I'm going to find out if it lives up to its reputation, because I genuinely played this game once, and I don't remember a damn thing. With that said, if you've enjoyed the show, feel free to contact me. You can use Twitter at what am I podcast for as in the number four. You can hit me up at what am I podcasting for at gmail.com. If you're somehow stumbling onto this episode in the wild, check out what am I podcasting for on your favorite podcast provider of choice or go to waipf.podbean.com if you want a manual RSS feed or direct episode downloads or anything of the sort. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and just remember if two characters are palette swapped from each other, this means that they're siblings. This is a lot of really weird implications for JRPG enemies.